Good morning, all. Hope we're having a good morning. It's nice to see the combined services. It's, uh, it's a nice, nice-sized crowd. Uh, my name's Dave Lindemulder. I'm one of the elders here. Um, in the summer, we're giving uh, Ben a break. He's going to rest and recharge. He's uh, sort of organizing his thoughts to, to get into the teaching series that will be planned for the, the fall. And so we're going to have a, a group of people uh, filling in, and, and I guess it's a little variety in how things are taught and the perspective. But I'm going to try to put a bow on the end of what we've been doing for the last couple of months. We've been lingering on Ezra and Nehemiah. And I say lingering because it, 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 it took more time than I might have thought it would have. Uh, and that's probably because I have a kind of maybe a, a, a small view of Old Testament uh, survey here, thinking, well, that, that was just the time like at the very end before, you know, that 400 years of nothing happening and waiting for the good part. And uh, yeah, they built a wall and things. I remember um, my kids came home from vacation Bible school once and, and my daughter showed me this little picture. It was like, I thought it was like a dog or a cat. And I'm like, what is this? And what Bible verse had the dog or the cat in it? She goes, no, daddy, this is the fox that couldn't break down the walls of Jerusalem. I'm like, oh, well, I didn't know about that. I had to go look it up. If you don't know about that one, you can look it up too. It's interesting, though, to, to, to uh, found ourselves. These are in real, uh, real events founded in real time. And um, there's a map, I think we have, of... Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's still there. I mean, you can see it today. And to get a feel for just uh, how big this endeavor was, um, those walls, the, the ancient walls of Jerusalem, just under three miles around, and um, the wall's about, I say, 12 meters high. That's just under 40 feet high. It's, it's a pretty large uh, structure, but then again, it's kind of a small place. It's not, it's not, like, a, it's not like the city of New York. But uh, if you're doing this all manually and rebuilding the gates, it was quite a big undertaking. Um, I have another picture, um, sort of get a perspective on it. Um, I got to see this, and if you want to know the story of how I ended up there, it was, it's interesting. But that's from the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives, you're looking over um, at what is now the Dome of the Rock, but had been Solomon's Temple. And prior to this, it's the temple that uh, Zerubbabel was building. Um, it's about three quarters of a mile. So if, you, if you're familiar with biblical history and what, what's, uh, what events happened where, that's looking over the Kidron Valley uh, to, the, to the walls that you can see of the Temple Mount and, and what's surrounding Jerusalem. Um, Exodus, uh, this, this story, like Exodus, also has a sort of meta-narrative going with it, the idea of building a community. And, and I think uh, Ben had given this, I think one of the best illustrations I've ever seen of this idea of having a meta-narrative. Um, not everybody was here for it, so you have to use your imagination. But he showed uh, a clip he'd found on YouTube or some such place of Disney and how the Disney animators had reused the wireframe animations of the motions of animated characters in two different, completely different movies. But when you saw them side by side, you realized that the, 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 the motion underneath was identical for, I think it was Lion King and, and uh, one other. The Old Testament is similar to this. When we look at the underlying truths, you see that they apply to more than just the time and place where they were are reporting on. Now, the one warning I'll give you, I heard this from an internet wag the other day, is it's important not to consider every possible meaning of a Bible story except for what it actually says. And there, there is this temptation when you get very uh, philosophical to pull into that. 
What did we look at, though, when we looked at um, this last few weeks of uh, the story of building these walls? Well, it's more than just building walls. It's building community. And I think the, the way we pull this into how our experience is, is what would it take to build a community? Um, there was the idea of there was a stirring and a gathering and a movement. Um, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. He, was, he, he had a job. He was in an important position. But even the king's heart was stirred. Ezra carried with him this sort of letter of credit and authority, which when you think about it, is just amazing. He was given from the king the return of the stuff that had been stolen from the temple. And he was able to go through what could be pretty hostile territory and with this letter from the king saying, basically, don't mess with me. <laughs> the king sent me to build this community. We talked about the centrality of the gift of worship. It's more than just a useful pick-me-up. You're not coming here just to feel good and then go back to the more important stuff of your week. The centrality of worship can be something you build a community around. We talked about ideas like perseverance. God enabled all these things to happen, but he also thwarted the opposition. And then this idea of sort of the tears of joy and tears of dismay when the people who had seen the temple in its original glory and saw the new temple were crying because it's just not what it used to be. And people who hadn't seen the temple in its glory were crying because it's so beautiful. And I think this is something we can relate to. Things are not always as good as we want them. And sometimes you say, well, this is just a gift that we have, what we've been given. It's a miracle. And sometimes we might just say, oh, it's not as, it's not as good as I want. You have to get past that and look for God's hands in it. Speaking of God's hand, we talked about how the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's more than just a, you know, a feel-good on a coffee cup. The joy of the Lord can strengthen us. It can be how we project our strength. It can be what we deliver to other people and what God delivers to us for how we live day by day. The law is more than just a set of do's and don'ts. The law can be our inspiration. And finally, last week we were talking about the idea of confession, how it cleanses and renews. So if you look at this whole story, it's really epic. I mean, you could make a Shakespearean sort of inspired framework from this story to, to build upon. There was an adversary, this guy Sanballat. He was the governor of Samaria. If you're familiar with Samaria, Samaritans, they were not. So, so the, these were people, long, long-term hostility between these groups of people. He had a, he had a second in command, this guy Tobiah. Tobiah. It was just epic. And if you were to make this into a movie, you would probably end it, I think, in chapter 10, where everybody comes together and says, we're committed. We've done it. We've succeeded. We will not neglect what we've built here. This community is fantastic, and it's, we've got nowhere to go but up. But if it was a movie, well, first you'd be looking forward to the sequel, and the sequel doesn't come for 400 years. So there's a long time between when this ends and the sequel. But I think it kind of would have one of those little post-credit things where you sit in the theater and you wait while the credits roll because actually, you know, chapters 11 and 12 are just all the people who are involved. And you might be willing to leave the theater when you're seeing, you know, second, second crew doing this. But all of a sudden, a scene pops up. Who knew? Nehemiah had been gone. He came back. And oh my goodness, what did he find? Exactly what everybody had promised not to do, they were doing. I think this is very common. I mean, I think when we're engaged in the struggle, we focus. When we see the goal, 
were committed. This idea of having accomplishments in relationship to a stated goal is very powerful. A lot of what you feel as satisfaction comes with setting a goal and accomplishing it. It's, it's a really important thing. And when the goals are accomplished, there's this letdown and you can lose your focus. You can lose your commitment. You can struggle. When major things are built, especially a thing like a community, it's very tempting to just think it's just going to keep going. Wait, we did it. We're done. But if you look even at civilizations that have risen and fallen, what happens after the pinnacle? There's a time of desecration. Things are not important. There's a time of decadence where you degrade and things decline. And eventually, then there's even a transgressive push. Things you never would have said you were going to do, you're going to do just to see what happens, because you can. So what happened here? What did, what did Nehemiah find when he came back? I'm going to give you four things he found, four things he did, and then we're going to think together a little bit about how might this meta-narrative of what happened there be applicable here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess right up front. Usually when I, I mean, I've had a lot of advance notice on this preaching. I don't do it every week, and, and Ben gives me advance, which I really appreciate. I, I marinate in these things, and I usually always have a really clear idea of I'm going to tell people this is how it, you should think about it. And this is sort of the cute illustration that's going to put it in your mind, this little anecdotal story. I don't have those. I don't know why it didn't come to me. So what I'm going to say is you're all going to have to work with me when I finish to say, how does this apply to me today? So let's jump into it. What happened? Well, first I want to say that what happened has a lot of precedence. And I want to harken back to a guy named Solomon. And if you think about the, the first uh, epic narrative, the meta story of the Exodus, at the end of Exodus in Deuteronomy, we read, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, don't go back that way again. So when the big success was had, getting out of Egypt, getting into the promised land, one of the one things you weren't supposed to do was go back. Now we get to 1 Kings. Solomon, one of the second kings of the, uh, or the third, I guess, of the, of the developing kingdom and called the wisest man on earth. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Solomon's horses were imported from, get this, Egypt. And it goes on to say how much they cost and how many. The very thing he was told not to do, he did. Solomon had a lot of success, but boy, he set the groundwork for trouble. So this, this idea of what's going on here in, in Jerusalem, again, is not without precedent. So what was one of the first things that happened? Well, I called it subletting the temple. Uh, verse 7, we read, Elishab, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, and he was closely associated with Tobiah, or the ESV says he was related. He had provided him with a large room. Wait, Tobiah, did that name sound familiar? When I was talking about the story, I said there was two people who were really the protagonists or the antagonists. They were really against the whole thing. They were, they were fomenting trouble. One, was a, some, one of the guys who was actually against the whole project was a guy named Tobiah. And somehow he scored himself a room in the temple. 
Now, this is really strange. And it was a room that was formerly used to store grain offerings, incense, and temple articles. The tithes of the grain, the new wine, the olive oil for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as contributions to the priests. Now, one of the first things you notice when Nehemiah comes back is he's like, hey, where is everybody? Why aren't we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Well, the musicians and the priests had all left because they'd essentially been defunded. They weren't getting their allocation. The room that would have been where they stored the stuff they'd used to run this enterprise was actually invaded by someone who was against the whole idea to begin with. So in verse 10, read, I learned the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and musicians responsible for service had gone back to their own fields. They, they weren't really left with a choice. They went back, and they had to, had to fend from themselves, and what would have happened on a regular basis in the temple just stopped. What else did uh, Nehemiah find? Well, there was a neglect of the Sabbath. In those days, I saw people from Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain, loading the donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. They were bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So things are sort of developing here. He said, why, is not, why are things not right? Why are things just going sideways on us. Well, the very last thing I'll, I'll, I'll categorize is what I called an unconsidered partnerships. And so, moving to verse 23, moreover in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Sanballat, does that name ring a bell? He was the other bad actor in this. Now, how did, how did this alliance happen? Now, um, I'm going to jump a little bit and, and say this is, this is a little hard for, a lot of this actually is hard for our American modern ears to sort of get. Um, one of the reasons is that, that we look at most things in terms of harm and fairness. Now, what's right? Well, if it's not hurting anybody, it's probably okay. What's right? Well, if everybody's treated fairly, it's probably okay. So this idea that there could be an invalid marriage, I mean, our first instinct is, oh, let the kids, let the kids, those, no, those kids, they wanted to marry, how could you say no? But in this context, this is a partnership of families. It may not, well, not have been the choice of the children to marry. This was an arranged marriage society. And you can think what you want about that way of thinking about marriage, but that's what this is about. So these were partnerships that were really pretty unwise. So what, uh, oh. So, so what I would contrast, the, the, the idea of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, um, has a lot more dimensions to this, does it hurt somebody and is it fair? You can also look at aspects of right and wrong in the, through the lens of sanctity. Should this thing be set apart or is it just a profane thing? Loyalty, is this my first priority or 
is it uh, lower on the list of things I'm loyal to? And those are actually very valid right and wrong things too. And, and in our culture, we don't think about them very often. Although this story starts to show how neglect of sanctity and loyalty leads to a loss of commitment, leads to things that are clearly wrong. Again, stepping all the way back, they've done all this effort, decades of effort to have a temple, to have a city, to have the gates, to have the people, to have the community. And Nehemiah is gone for a little while and he comes back and none of it's happening again. None of it's happening again. How did it fall apart that quickly? So what did he do? So he had, to, he had to do a few things. The first was to purify the temple. So he said, I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and incense. He had to find some trustworthy help. Next. All of Judah brought the tithes of the grain, the new wine, the olive oils to the storeroom and I put um, well, that's, that's a mouthful. Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storm to make Hanan, son of Zadok, and son of Mattiah the assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. Untrustworthy people had been running the show for a while, people with other agendas, people who weren't committed to uh, just holding up what they'd set, that promise they would do. They found reliable people. What did you have to do next? Verse 22. He began to guard the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And finally, purify the priesthood. So I purified the priests and the Levites, put everything foreign and put, I purified the priests and Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I made provisions for contributions. He, he restored the tithe. He reoriented the people who had been disoriented. So what do we sanctify? What do we set apart? What is this idea of sanctification? What really went wrong here? Sanctification is the idea that something is sacred. Something is awe-inspiring. Something is transcendently important. It has intrinsic value. You need to understand it. You need to respect it. Remember. Honor it. You show fidelity to it. And when you pull down something that should be sanctified something that should be honored and respected, should be set apart, there's a quick decline where it's degraded. It's not understood. It's profaned. This idea of decadence comes in. De decadence, I often, you know, you can think about a decadent desserts, just, just calories over calories over calories, and it just, it tastes so good, it doesn't even taste good anymore. It's just that sweet. But you can have a decadence of spirit, a decadence of soul that, You've just lost sight of what's important and you, you engage in things that you might not have just a little while ago when you were committed. So two things, I, I, and here's where I began to struggle. I mean, I, okay, all this stuff was clear to me when I looked at it. After a while, I looked at it. Hopefully, I made, made the events clear to you. I'm like, well, how does this apply? What was really going on? People lost their sense of of the intrinsic value of the things that were going on, the Sabbath, the, 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 the tithing, the worship. And it began to degrade and it instantly went sideways on them. So how do we think about this here? Well, we don't guard our temple, our, our building like they were, but we're taught that we are in fact the temple of God. We don't have some of the same rules for a priesthood that they might, but we're told that we are all a royal priesthood. So there's got to be a linkage here. There's got to be a linkage. So in what part of you 
the temple of God, might you have opened up a room that should really be dedicated to other purposes to someone who has no business being there? Where have you allocated space in your life that it might not belong? What do you let in? And I don't know where I got this quip, but I, I, I do remember somebody, I think it was in the context of, of, a, of a sporting event where the underdog team was being told not to let the other guys in your head, right? You know, you, you know that this is going to be hard. Don't let them in your head. And I think you kind of know what that means. They're in your head now. But the coach said, it's one thing to have them get in your head, but you do not need to rent them a room and promise to furnish it. So... There are a lot of reasons why there might be things that have gotten into you that you know don't belong. And I'm not trying to say, oh, just beat yourself up and try to, by force of will, push those things out. But you got to recognize them and you got to set them aside. And, and like, like uh, Nehemiah did, you have to be in a position where you, you take steps to purify yourself. As we did before, as Joe led us, this is a weekly struggle. No one here has completely purified the temple of the Lord that you've been given. During the week, during the day, even in the minutes or hours after this service, there are going to be things that are going to challenge you. And you need to think about, what have I let take over a room in me that has no business being there? Next would be, uh, I'm going to do uh, some of the easier or the harder ones, actually. So the, 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 the idea of the allegiances, like, like the, the uh, marriages where, where the, the impact of these uh, partnerships, I'll call them, between these large families. And again, like, you, you might say, how did this happen? Like, the high priest has a familiar relationship with the two most dedicated adversaries to what the high priest... How did you get yourself there? I don't know. I mean, I tried to work out the whole time, timeline in this. One of the things that uh, Ben had mentioned and, and I found too, like um, there's a lot of flashback, flash forward, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really hard to figure out what's going on when and in what order. I, I put it all into chat GPT and chat GPT couldn't figure it out for me either. So I don't, I don't feel bad anymore. It, it gave me like 30 year ranges for everything and they might overlap or not. But um, I would, by the way, recommend if you do want to just know something about the Bible, put into ChatGPT. It'll give you it'll it'll give you a pretty good summary pretty quick. Uh, then go double check it in the Bible. But um, it, it's it's a great it's a great research tool, by the way. Um, so so if we, we think get beyond sort of this uh, what I would call the Montague and Capulet thinking, like like we're we're trained to think, oh well, you know, the way that we reconcile things or, or the, the tragic story of Romeo and Juliet is we will form these alliances. I, I think you need to be careful about your alliances. You need to figure out what you've given your first commitments to, who the people that are that represent those commitments, and who people are who might represent opposition to your commitments, and just keep them in mind. Be aware. Don't, don't give undue priority to people, things, or ideas that are actually stated at tearing you down. Also, the idea of the Sabbath. Uh, again, to our, to our ears, this idea of uh, what, how do we celebrate the Sabbath? What does it mean? What do we do? Uh, a, a good way to abstract that a bit and, and stay away from legalism could be to consider the fact that we're promised. We're promised to enter into rest. And we're promised now in the new covenant that, that we have access to rest. What does it mean rest? Our souls can rest. Our souls can feel fulfilled. Our souls can be free of the things that would distract and tear us down. And when you don't 
set aside time, when you don't dedicate and sanctify a day, everything starts to look like everything else. And you, you, you forfeit. The rest were promised. The tithe was one of the other things that didn't go well. And uh, without preaching a whole sermon on tithing and, and how much money it takes to support a church and how great it would be if we had more of your money given to us to do the things that we know you should give us the money to do. What you find in your checkbook is a clear roadmap to what's important to you. And I really don't want to be in anybody's business on this. But I think most people who have a maturity of faith understand that we're called to be generous and we're called to support things that are important to us. And this was one of the things that, again, the, the people who have been given this great gift of a community seem to quickly forget. And they, they stop the tithe. They stop being generous. Later, Haggai talks about it like you're robbing God. Are you crazy? And this is going to be the result. When you rob God, it's going to be like the money that you have is being put in a purse with holes in it. And uh, it's, just, it's just a thing to be mindful of. What is important to you? What do you, and I, again, I don't want to get in this legalistic, this has to be that much and this has to be that much. The new covenant actually has a much higher threshold than just the 10% of the old covenant. So the, the, the demand, the idea is, is it important to you to be generous? And are you taking steps to be as generous as you possibly can in all dimensions? Is it important? And are you taking steps? And so that sets aside that, well, you know, I just started making this and I have that expense or I have this. No. Is it important to you to be generous? And are you taking steps to sanctify God's gift to you? Are, are you trying? And, and I encourage everybody uh, to contemplate that and try. There's a lot of blessing that comes along with that in your finances, not, not the least of which is, a, is a, a peace that I know I'm being faithful and maybe I'm in a hard financial hardship now, but I've been faithful with this. And it's, it, at a certain point, you go, it's, okay, God, it's on you. you. You need to fix these things. So bringing this to a close, I believe I have some more notes here. I really do want to encourage you to think through how you are both the temple yourself and how you act as a priesthood and how the very things that Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, other guy, Nehemiah needed to do are applicable to you. What do you find important and, and uh, worthy of sanctifying? What do you set aside that's, that's above all else, no compromise, these are the things that are going to be done? What are the things that you celebrate and say, this is important? Where are the alliances you have? If you look back at what they had to do, consider what wasn't a problem. Getting the kings and the locals to cooperate got taken care of. Getting the resources to build the wall and, and, and getting the people to volunteer to come happened. The delays they hit, didn't it set them back, but it didn't stop them. So what were the excuses for the lapses? Well, at a certain point, well, I just didn't know. But Ezra set that aside. Maybe I knew and I forgot. Well, Nehemiah set that one aside. But let's be more honest with ourselves. When we don't do the things that we've committed to, that we know are valid commitments, and we know we've forsaken, isn't it more often, well, I just can't help myself? This is just the way I am. I just can't help myself. 
Or maybe even more insidious, well, I don't agree. I know I, I know I said I would do that, but I'm not sure I agree. Or maybe you're getting angry and you're rebellious. Like maybe you've justified the commitment you've made is actually to an unfaithful person in some aspect that you've evaluated them. And you're just angry, so maybe you don't want to cooperate anymore. I used to, I used to want to, I don't. Maybe you just become discouraged. You feel like you've been faithful and committed and done the same thing and you don't see any fruit from it. I, I really encourage you to set all those things aside. As, as Joe was talking in the, in the time of confession, we have a high priest now who is not out striking side deals for the temple. We're not stuck with um, whatever the guy's name was who married into the family of the, uh, of the oppressors. We have a high priest who is perfect in every way, but not unsympathetic to when we say, well, I didn't know or I forgot. It's really hard. Our high priest is sympathetic to that. So it's, it's, he's worthy of serving. He's worthy of following. We should also make sure that the commitments that we are maintaining remain sacred and don't become profaned. I think sometimes we lose sight of what's awesome. I think the people of Israel lost sight of what was just a fantastic miracle that they'd come from nothing to a city with people and a temple and a priesthood. And as soon as it was all given to them, they just forgot. I think our temptation is, is different, but the same. I mean, do you find yourself when you think about this idea of, of keeping things holy and keeping things sanctified? Holy is set apart. Sanctified is, 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 uh, is made important in, a, in a, a very deep and religious way. Do you think it's easier now or harder? Do you think it was easier then or harder? I conclude it's hard then. It's hard now. It's just different now. And recognizing where we are and what we want at the core is not any different than those people of Israel, but in the details can be very different. So one of the things that we, we do here to remind us every week of the awe. I mean, what, what is the new awe that we're looking toward? We're looking forward to a new Jerusalem. We are grateful and thankful for the salvation we've been given. We've been delivered from slavery, our, our bondage to sin. And all those meta-narratives from the Old Testament are real and alive in our life. We come together, and I'm going to ask uh, the, the servers to, to prepare and celebrate communion. It seems like a simple thing, but it's a sanctified thing. It's a set-aside thing. It's something that if we, we lose respect and awe for, it, it goes over our head, what we're talking about, what we're doing. We come together to celebrate the pivotal point in time when the new covenant came into being, the solution was made clear. The promise of the new Jerusalem became more real. Jesus was betrayed. He shed his blood. His body was broken. And by that, we were allowed access to the Holy of Holies. We were allowed access. We became the temple of God. It's, it's something that's both profoundly simple and fantastically complicated. It's, it's a thing that is worthy of our awe and needs to be viewed as a transcendent, core, pivotal, core part of who we are. So the way we communicate, the way we do uh, communion here is we do it by intention. So in the back, there's uh, 
two folks that have both uh, a, uh, a leavened and a, or an unleavened and a uh, gluten-free bread, if that's important to you. And I will be serving in the front a uh, gluten-filled wafer. We come, we come and dip the wafer in the, in the wine to remember the sacrifice that was made 